The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Lectures on the Politics of God and the Politics of Man Lecture 11 Socialism Part 3 An inevitable consequence of socialist logic is the belief that mammon is the answer to man's problems. This fact can be seen in the way socialist governments seek to solve virtually every kind of social problem. If only more money were available, if only there were more economic equality, we could solve all our problems. But money does not solve man's problems. There are more funds available to the state now than at any other period of our history, due to the success, ironically, of capitalist enterprise. And we now have more economic equality than at any other time in our history, due again to the success of capitalistic enterprise. But this has not solved our problems. Socialism has palpably failed to deliver the goods and benefits for mankind that it promised. Indeed, It has failed even to deliver the narrow economic benefits it promised to the masses. On the material level, the extent to which modern Western society has these economic advantages is due entirely to the success of capitalism, not socialism. Furthermore, the cultural progress experienced by the Western nations since the Reformation has not been the fruit of socialism but rather the fruit of a Christian way of life in which individuals have been free to use their wealth in accordance with their own consciences. It has well been said that, and I quote, were it not for the right of man to do what he liked with his property, little would exist in religion, art, science, social and medical work today. Unquote. It was the work of the church, Christian charities, private donations and endowments, and voluntary giving motivated by a Christian conscience that created the educational and medical services that so revolutionised the life of the ordinary people in modern Western society. The state did not create these institutions. It merely hijacked them once they had been created by the Christian society of previous centuries. And once it had taken over, the secular state systematically set about stripping these institutions of the Christian values and ideals that brought them into being in the first place. For example, under the control of the British Secular State's National Health Service, hospitals originally created for the saving of life have been turned into death factories by the practice of abortion, and the grim reality of modern medical practice under the guidance of secular ideals seems likely to get only worse as a result of the constant attempts of politicians to legalise euthanasia. 
Requiring the state to fulfil our responsibilities for us has not solved society's problems. Far from solving our problems, the socialist state has exacerbated them. For example, the modern state, which seeks to control so much of our lives, is one of the worst vandals that history has known. It squanders vast millions of taxpayers' money on useless and destructive projects that contribute nothing to the betterment of human society and culture, quite apart from the millions spent on unnecessary wars. Nor is this the case only with the tin-pot socialist dictatorships that seem to be endemic in the third world and that seem only to reduce their societies to ever greater poverty in what appears to be their mission to spread human misery as widely as possible. Western states are equally guilty of waste and vandalism at all levels, whether it is funding third world dictatorships, spending millions of taxpayers' money on computer systems that do not work, or giving grants to students to enable them to engage in idiotic performance art. I am thinking here, for example, of an arts grant given to some students in the United Kingdom a number of years ago for a performance art project in which two hard hats were yoked together on the top by a short plank of wood. The performance of the art for which the grant was awarded consisted of two students walking round the streets of the city wearing these hard hats yoked together by the plank of wood. A local television news programme carried the story. Similar examples of idiotic activities and installations masquerading as art and regularly sponsored by the state with taxpayers' money could be multiplied. Well, of course, art is a necessary element of human life. In the most desperate of conditions, men have shown themselves to be artists. Art is vital to culture. Of this there is no doubt. Of course, mankind is created in God's image and therefore creativity is at the heart of what it means to be human. But does the taxpayer really have to foot the bill for this kind of thing? Where art is not funded by the state, this is unlikely to happen. Stupidity is not an art form. Where people are allowed to retain responsibility for the stewardship of the resources that God has given them, they can choose not to subsidise stupidity and they can subsidise excellence instead. The socialist state, ever ready to regulate society in accordance with the wishes of those lobbying groups that can gain the ear of politicians and promise votes at elections, has been a poor and wasteful sponsor of the arts and consequently has engaged in cultural as well as economic and military vandalism. The modern state is anything but responsible in its attitude to taxpayers' money. Its record as a steward of society's resources is one of the worst. The Bible gives stewardship of the economic resources of society to the family and to the individual, not to the state. To insist that the state should usurp the role of the family and abridge the liberty of the individual by calling for the socialist organisation of society is rebellion against God. It is, of course, our duty as individuals, as families, as communities and particularly as the Christian community of faith, the Church, to help the needy and care for the genuinely poor. But it is not the duty of the State to usurp our responsibility to do this by providing welfare that is funded by taxation, 
which confiscates the very funds necessary for individuals, families and churches to fulfil their God-ordained responsibility to care for the needy and help the poor. The state has no authority, no mandate in God's word to take these responsibilities away from us. When it does, it distorts the humane social order that God has ordained for society in scripture and creates in its place a dysfunctional society. This is because under such circumstances, the other institutions responsible for these things, family and church, are not able to function according to their divinely ordained roles. And neither does the state itself function according to its divinely ordained role in such circumstances. As a result, justice itself, which it is the proper function of the state to uphold, is compromised. Neither does the usurpation of the roles of these other institutions by the state create a caring society, as socialist propaganda would have us believe. Rather, it creates an uncaring society, a society in which individuals, families and communities, and alas, even the church, abdicate their responsibilities to the anonymous state. The state is then expected to shoulder all of man's social responsibilities, a role for which it was never intended and that it is not competent to fulfil. The consequence of the state's attempt to fulfil this expectation is the near total control and regulation of life by the state, that is to say, totalitarianism, the abolition of freedom. And this is the moral that naive socialists have never understood. Christian, no less than atheist. If men will not shoulder their responsibilities, they will inevitably lose their freedom. This is a lesson that has been demonstrated time and again in those countries that have embraced socialism. It will be no different in the United Kingdom, since our freedom has already been abolished in principle and replaced by the fraudulent secular humanist ideal known as human rights. Furthermore, there are insufficient funds available to enable the state to fulfil the role that socialists conceive for it. How is this problem to be solved? The answer of just about every socialist I have ever known is that his neighbour does not pay enough taxes and should be taxed more. But not our socialist comrade. Of course, he pays his fair share already, if not too much. It would be unreasonable to expect him to pay more taxes. Christian socialists should take note of the biblical commandment to love one's neighbour as oneself. I have yet to see a wealthy socialist calling for more taxes, and there are plenty of them doing this, particularly in the world of entertainment and media, who is willing to donate some of his wealth to the state, which is not the same thing as donating it to charity, and socialism requires the state to provide for man's welfare, not charity, which is often treated with contempt by socialists. In the perspective of the socialists, you see, private property is wrong, except for the private property in his pocket. Socialism is the politics of envy, and even as the unlearned tipped to be Pope, Cardinal Oscar Rodriguez should have known, envy is sin. As another religion, an alternative to Christianity, which is what it is, and therefore an idolatrous philosophy of life, 
Socialism rejects God's law in principle. It is no wonder then that the fruit produced by the tree of socialism in the 20th century, the century of socialism, was so inimical to Christian values at all levels. For example, health care, witness abortion and euthanasia, sexual ethics, witness the permissive society and homosexual liberation, education, witness indoctrination of the religion of secular humanism in the state education system and the abolition of Clause 28, law, witness the overturning of justice due to the victims of crime and the indulgence with which criminals are treated, economics, witness legalised theft on a grand scale by the state and state-licensed institutions, the family, witness the welfare state in combination with permissive legislation on divorce which has virtually destroyed the Christian ideal of family life. Where and in what principles, policies and practices does socialism conform to Christian ideals? Nowhere. In no socialist doctrine, said Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and I quote, are moral demands seen as the essence of socialism. There is merely a promise that morality will fall like manna from heaven after the socialization of property. Accordingly, nowhere on earth have we been shown ethical socialism in being. Unquote. Socialism is a worldview, a religion that is diametrically opposed to the Christian religion in its view of God, its code of ethics, and its teaching on social and political order. The term atheism is inappropriate for the description of people in the grip of socialist doctrines, said Igor Shevarovich. Quote, it would be more correct to speak here not of atheists, but of God-haters, not of atheism, but of theophobia. Unquote. According to Shevarovich, and I, again I quote, the socialist ideal, that basic complex of ideas which for many thousands of years has lain at the foundation of socialist ideology, can now be formulated. 1. Equality and the destruction of hierarchy. 2. The destruction of private property. 3. The destruction of religion. 4. The destruction of the family. Unquote. To this, Shefarovich then adds the complete annihilation of human individuality. His startling conclusion is that, and again I quote, Socialism aims at the destruction of those aspects of life which form the true basis of human existence. That is why we think that the death of mankind is the inescapable logical consequence of socialist ideology, and simultaneously a real possibility hinted at in every socialist movement and state with a degree of clarity which depends on its fidelity to the socialist ideal. Unquote. Christians must see the socialist agenda for what it is, revolution against God's will for man's life. The church is called to speak the prophetic word of God to society and call the nations to repentance, that is to say, back to obedience to God's law. If she is to do this faithfully, she must resolutely stand against socialism in all its forms. Before bringing these three lectures on socialism to an end,
a brief word needs to be said about some neglected aspects of Marxist ideology. First, Marxist communism and socialism. The social and political regime realised in Soviet Russia was not communism, but rather socialism, and this fact was acknowledged by the Soviet regime itself. In an interview with Joseph Stalin on the 1st of March 1936, Roy Howard, president of Scripps Howard Newspapers, put it to Stalin that, and I quote, admittedly, communism has not been achieved in Russia, unquote. In his answer, Stalin said to Howard, and again I quote, Our Soviet society is socialist society because the private ownership of the factories, works, the land, the banks and the transport system has been abolished and public ownership put in its place. The social organisation which we have created may be called a Soviet socialist organisation, not entirely completed, but fundamentally a socialist organisation of society. The foundation of this society is public property. State, that is national and also cooperative, collective farm property. Yes, you are right. We have not yet built communist society. It is not so easy to build such a society. You are probably aware of the difference between socialist society and communist society. In a socialist society, certain inequalities in property still exist. Unquote. In Marxist communist ideology, socialism is a temporary phenomenon, a stage in society's transition from capitalism to communism. Socialism requires a strong centralised state, since the realisation of communist ideals necessitates the oppressive enforcement of a radical programme of social engineering. This is because the kind of society envisioned by communist ideology involves the overturning of the God-ordained and therefore the natural order of society, which is a family-based order that requires and encourages personal freedom and responsibility, ideals that inevitably lead to social inequalities and that are therefore inimical to communist ideology. But the ideology of Marxist communism requires the eventual abolition or withering away of the state. Only when the state has withered away and ceased to exist is society considered to have achieved a state of communism in Marxist ideology. According to Frederick Engels, and I quote, As soon as there is no longer any social class to be kept in suppression, and as soon as class domination and the struggle for individual existence based on the hitherto existing anarchy of production, that is to say capitalism, are removed, along with the conflicts and excesses which arise from them, then there will be nothing more to repress and nothing that would make necessary a special repressive power, a state. The first act in which the state really appears as representative of the whole society, the taking possession of the means of production in the name of society, is simultaneously its last independent act as a state. The intervention of state power in social affairs becomes superfluous in one field after another until at last it falls asleep of its own accord. Unquote. Likewise, Lenin stated that, and again I quote, 
The proletariat needs only a state which is withering away. That is to say, a state so constituted that it begins to wither away immediately and cannot but wither away. Unquote. Prior to the realisation of this golden age of communism, however, society must, according to Marxist ideology, experience a period of political transition in which the state can be nothing other than quote, the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. Unquote. This is the socialist state. In fact, however, the period of the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat, socialism, has turned out historically to be a permanent revolution of the most oppressive kind in which the state, far from withering away, achieves a condition of virtual apotheosis. Indeed, Hegel, upon whose philosophy of history the ideology of Marxism is built, refers to the state, following Kant, as erdisch Gottliches, that is to say, earthly godly. Second, Marxism and sexual communism. The eradication of marriage and the abolition of family life based upon it in favour of free love, that is to say sexual communism as well as economic and political communism, has also been one of the goals of Marxist communism. According to Denis de Rougemont, and I quote, Revolutionary Russia was the scene of a youthful outburst of sex, which it is tempting to regard as unprecedented in European annals. As for marriage, theoretically it was swept away during the early stages of the Soviets. Nihilist or romantic intellectuals had inspired the young Bolshevist leaders with a doctrine that found expression in unmarried cohabitation, abortion and the desertion of babies. In short, in whatever was imagined to defy reactionary prejudices, mistakenly thought to have been fostered by bourgeois capitalism. Unquote. This ideal of free love proved impossible to sustain even in communist Russia, and its deleterious social consequences were subsequently reversed by Stalin for pragmatic reasons. Experience taught the government says de Arce, and I quote, that lawless love endangered the good of society, that there were fundamental laws that could not be infringed without peril, and so new legislation corrected the excessive liberties permitted at first, unquote. Likewise, Denis de Rougemont states that, and again I quote, Stalin's immediate aim was to rebuild the framework of his nation, for in the absence of a framework, economic life was in danger of collapse and national defence could not be organised without constant appeal to the passion of the early revolutionaries and it was precisely this passion that Stalin had determined to get rid of. To lay down new social foundations and especially that most stable and stabilising of units, the family, became therefore a vital necessity. The nature of the mechanism of productivist dictatorship compelled the so-called socialist state to decree a series of laws against divorce, which was made more burdensome, and against abortion and the deserting of babies born out of wedlock. The sudden severity of these laws, the psychological shock which they inflicted, 
propaganda and measures enabling the police to keep a watch on private life transformed the moral atmosphere of Russia around about the year 1936. Marriage was instituted again on strictly utilitarian, collectivist and eugenic principles and there was promoted a spirit in which individual problems tended to lose all their dignity, legitimacy and lawless virulence. Third, Marxist Communism and the Family Marxist communist ideology, like virtually all other forms of communism throughout history, also predicted the abolition or withering away of the family, since the family, like Christianity, constitutes a serious obstacle to the consistent realisation of communist principles. According to the Russian communist diplomat and radical feminist Alexandra Kolontai, and I quote, The old form of the family is passing away. The communist society has no use for it. The bourgeois world celebrated the isolation, the cutting off of the married pair from the collective wheel. In the scattered and disjointed bourgeois society full of struggle and destruction, the family was the sole anchor of hope in the storm of life, the peaceful haven in the ocean of its hostilities and competitions between persons. The family represented an individual class in the social unit. There can be no such thing in the communist society. For communist society as a whole represents such a fortress of the collective life, precluding any possibility of the existence of an isolated class of family bodies existing by itself with its ties of birth, its love of family, honour, its absolute segregation. Unquote. Likewise, Frederick Engels says that, and I quote, with the transfer of the means of production into common ownership, the individual family ceases to be an economic unit of society. Private housekeeping is transformed into a social industry. The care and education of children become a public affair. Society looks after all children equally, whether they are born in or out of wedlock, unquote. The family is one of the principal opponents of socialism. It stands for everything that is inimical to the realisation of a socialist society. If socialism is to be established, therefore, the family must be destroyed. Igor Shaverovich spells out for us just what this will mean. Quote, In socialist society, the family will lose all its social functions, which from the Marxist point of view means it will die out. The Communist Manifesto proclaims the disappearance of the bourgeois family. But by the twenties they were already managing without this epithet. Professor S. Y. Wolfson in his lengthy work The Sociology of Marriage and the Family, 1929, foresaw that the family would lose the following characteristics. Its productive function, which it was already losing under capitalism, its joint household, people would take their meals communally. Its child-rearing function, they would be reared in state nurseries and kindergartens. Its role in the care of the aged and the cohabitation of parents with children and of married couples. The family will be purged of its social content. It will wither away." Unquote. 
Most of these predictions are in varying degrees now well advanced realities for a great many families in the United Kingdom as a result of the implementation by successive governments over the second half of the 20th century of social engineering policies inspired by socialist political ideology. The state has taken over much of the traditional role of the family. Although in many families both parents work, the family has lost its productive function. The increasing provision of breakfast clubs and after-school activities for children in schools means that many families spend much less time together and eat fewer meals together. Nursery provision for, in for infants and the encouraging of mothers back into the workforce shortly after childbirth means that children are increasingly being brought up not by their parents but by the state schools and society as a whole increasingly sees this situation as normal. Increasingly, care of the aged in old people's homes, although not primarily run by the state, is nevertheless funded and regulated by the state on a large scale. And although cohabitation of parents and children together is still common, the loss of Christian ethics with regard to the liberalisation of divorce laws acceptance of extramarital sexual relationships and the redefinition of the family consequent upon these developments means that many parents do not stay together and many children do not live with both of their parents, do not have a stable family environment in which to grow up and no adequate father figure, an essential aspect of normal family life that cannot be replaced by a series of the mother's live-in boyfriends and indeed often may not even know who their fathers are. The consequent breakdown of the family as the basic social unit in society has a traumatic effect on the lives of the individuals involved, and especially on children, and has produced an increasingly dysfunctional society. The pace at which these developments are progressing shows no sign of slowing down, as the first decade of the 21st century demonstrated. And the increases in taxes needed to fund the state's provision in all these areas weakens the family even further, forcing it into greater dependence on the state. Although Marxist communism has not been successful in achieving its goal of eradicating family life altogether, therefore, the rise of socialism has been one of the main causes of the decline of marriage and stable family life in those countries where it has had any influence either as an individual ideology or as a form of economic and social organisation. According to Shevarovich, speaking of socialism as a phenomenon spanning the entire history of mankind, and I quote, in socialist states, we observe the abolition of private ownership of the means of production, state control of everyday life, and the subordination of the individual to the power of the bureaucracy. In socialist doctrines, we observe the destruction of private property, of religion, of the family and of marriage, and the introduction of wife-sharing." The antithesis that exists between socialist ideology and family life means that it is impossible for a truly socialist society to be at the same time a strongly family-based society. This fact is borne out not only by former socialist states such as those of the Soviet Union, 
and communistic societies such as monasteries and religious communes, but also by modern Western societies such as Britain and other European states. The degree to which socialism has been, is being or can be realised in any society is commensurate with the decline of the family in that society. Socialist ideology, as well as communist ideology, is fundamentally inimical to the family and to the values and virtues presupposed and reinforced by the family. The implementation of socialist ideals, politically and religiously, has always been highly detrimental to the institution of marriage and to family life based upon it. Yet without the acceptance, preservation and support of this institution, politically and religiously, society becomes dysfunctional, a fact demonstrated not only by our own socialist era, but by the socialist and communist experiments of previous ages and cultures. Fourth, Marxism, Libertarianism and Idolatry. Marxism reduces human life to the economic aspect. The result is a form of idolatry in which the economic aspect provides meaning and purpose to human life and society. According to Leon Trotsky, and I quote, the task of socialism is to create a classless society based upon solidarity and the harmonious satisfaction of all needs, unquote. Ultimately, a classless society necessitates, among other things, economic equality, and leaving aside the vexed question of definition, the harmonious satisfaction of all economic needs requires a general level of economic prosperity that has proved elusive in socialist societies. Granted, capitalism has not achieved these goals either, but society has advanced much nearer to these goals under the capitalist organisation of production than under any other form of economic organisation. Nevertheless, such goals are utopian and imply far more than the mere reorganisation of economic production and distribution. This latter fact is evident both in the ideology of socialism and in the practical outworking of socialist ideals. Socialism is a false religion in which the whole life of man and society is made to function around and derive its meaning from the economic aspect of life. Everything, therefore, is subordinated to this. Socialism is mammonism writ large. Unfortunately, this idolatry of the economic aspect of life has passed into Western society more generally and has become a dominant feature of the worldview of many who reject Marxism. For many libertarians, including Ludwig von Mises, the meaning of life is effectively reduced to the economic aspect. In the same way, the Protestant work ethic has been secularised, drained of its spiritual meaning and turned into a form of idolatry and even used as a form of slavery rather than as a tool of man's freedom and dominion under God. According to Jacques C. Lull, and I quote, The bourgeois morality was and is primarily a morality of work and metre. Work purifies, ennobles. It is a virtue and a remedy. Work is the only thing that makes life worthwhile. It replaces God and the life of the spirit. More precisely, it identifies God with work. Success becomes blessing. God expresses his satisfaction by distributing money to those who have worked well. 
Before this first of all virtues, the others fade into obscurity. If laziness was the mother of all vices, work was the father of all virtues. This attitude was carried so far that bourgeois civilization neglected every virtue but work. Unquote. However, this reduction of man to the economic aspect was, says Ilul, completed under the reign of the triumphant bourgeoisie and therefore predates the rise of the revolutionary myth and Marxist communism. Fifth, Marxism, Fascism and Socialism. It needs to be remembered that fascism is a form of socialism and has nothing in common ideologically with capitalism. Unfortunately, popular misunderstanding and misuse of the terms fascism and capitalism has obscured this fact. National socialism, that is to say Hitler's version of fascism, was the policy of the German National Socialist Labour Party. The term Nazi is an abbreviation of the German word Nationalsozialistisch. According to Ludwig von Mises, the conflation of these terms originated in communist propaganda. Quote, it is important to realise that fascism and Nazism were socialist dictatorships. The communists, both the registered members of the communist parties and the fellow travellers, stigmatise fascism and Nazism as the highest and last and most depraved stage of capitalism. This is in perfect agreement with their habit of calling every party which does not unconditionally surrender to the dictates of Marxism, even the German Social Democrats, the classical party of Marxism, hirelings of capitalism. It is of much greater significance that the communists have succeeded in changing the semantic connotation of the term fascism." Unquote. Similarly, the use of the term right-wing to describe capitalism, which is very common today, is misleading and completely fails to describe the true nature of capitalism and the kind of society that it presupposes and helps to maintain. Capitalism is not a right-wing phenomenon since it refers to a system of economic organisation of society that has nothing in common with fascism, namely private ownership, both legal and economic, of the means of production. The term right-wing refers to fascism, and fascism is a form of socialism. End of Lecture 11 These lectures are produced by the Kuiper Foundation, a charitable trust in England, Registration number 327537, supported financially by means of voluntary donations from those who believe in the course for which it works. The Kuiper Foundation is not a business, and it makes all its literature, films and lectures available free of charge on its website as PDF files, audio files and QuickTime movies. Nevertheless, in order to produce the literature and audio files we make available, and in order to progress the work of the Foundation further, we need financial support from those who believe in the course for which we are working. If you have found these lectures to be useful and believe in the cause that the Kuiper Foundation exists to promote, please consider supporting the Foundation financially. You can make donations on our website at the following address, www.kuiper.org forward slash donations. 
More information about the work of the Kuiper Foundation can be found on our website at www.kuiper.org under the About Us page. The next lecture in this series will be Communism in the New Testament. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.